were listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture comes from John 19, 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If we haven't had the chance to meet would love to say hello to you after the service, so please come up and introduce yourself. I'm looking forward to diving into uh, the Word with you this afternoon in our time together. But before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me? God, as we just sang, you are God and you are good. A good Father who gives good gifts to his children. And God, today we want to thank you for the gift of grace that it is to gather together as the church. God, we do pray that you'd bring us all back together, that you'd bring an end to this pandemic that's going on, that's keeping us some at home and some here, that we'd all be able to gather in person again soon. But God, we thank you for technology. We thank you for the ability now to be in this place, to have your word sung and prayed and read and now preached. God, would you help us as we sit under the preaching of your word to receive it also as a gift. Thank you that you give us your word, living and active, not only to inform us about who you are and who we are, God, but to transform us. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit as we spend time in these few verses now, God, that you would do that kind of work in our lives. Guide us, God. Lead us by your word. Instruct us for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, two things that I'm guessing most of us, probably all of us, have at least one of in our homes are a mirror and pictures or photos. These two things have some similarities about them. They both show us a picture of something. They capture and reflect an image for us to look at. But they also clearly have some differences. A photo is still and static. A mirror is active and dynamic. But they both give us a snapshot in time. The photo shows us something that happened in the past. The mirror shows us something that's happening in the present. But as soon as we walk away from it, it's gone. In James chapter 1, James tells us that Scripture is like a mirror. It shows us who we are in light of who God is. And James exhorts us to look intently into the mirror of the Word. And as we look at that, not to forget who we are, and who we're called to be when we walk away. He wants us to see the image that's in the mirror of the word, and he wants that to become like a photo that we can take with us when we walk away. As we come to our text today, I want us to look into the mirror of the word 
and walk away with it as a photo. That as we go out into our lives, into our week, we would take what we learn and apply it to our lives. This text that was just read, it's an interesting text to preach a sermon from. It's only five verses. There's no commands in it. And in a lot of ways, it just seems like it's moving the story along between what happened to Jesus in the text last week, being crucified on the cross, and what's going to happen in the text next week. But if we enter into it, remembering that it's God's word to us, that God's word is always intentional, that he's seeking to teach us about who he is, and there has to be something for us in it, something we can glean, something we can gain for our own lives. In it, what we see is that not only have the disciples, but literally the whole world has entered into a moment of waiting, a time of uncertainty and the unknown. Jesus is dead. He's dead and now they hold their collective breath. Today, I want us to enter into this holy moment we see take place in this, these few short verses. And as we do that, we're gonna see three characters, three players kind of emerge within this short section of scripture. And so I want us to look at them as examples, like mirrors reflecting true things about us back to us. Because as we look at each of these people, there are things to learn about our savior and about ourselves. And so my hope for us today is that you will see and experience that God gives grace. God gives grace, not in spite of, but in the midst of moments and times of uncertainty in the unknown. And because of that, that you can have peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, no matter what comes your way. So with that, let's jump into John 19 and close out this chapter. And may we see Jesus more clearly as we do so. Last week, we saw the unfolding of what Jesus has referred to over and over again as his hour. His hour has come. He's been crucified on the cross, a Roman cross, his arms outstretched and nailed to these pieces of wood, his feet nailed to the beam that he's brought up and lifted up high on, and a sign has been placed above his head. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But as we said last week, as we saw last week, Jesus' death wasn't accidental. It wasn't tragic. It wasn't a sign of failure. No, Jesus' death was purposeful and effective and specific and sufficient and all-encompassing and complete. When Jesus declared it is finished on the cross, what he declared over you and to you is that his death paid for all of your sin. There's no aspect of our lives now that can out the grace of God because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul writes, For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, when God looks at you now, if you've placed your faith in him, he doesn't see a sinner and a rebel who's rebelled against him. He sees his righteous son. Because Jesus has given that to us. In Jesus and through Jesus, him alone, you are able to be redeemed and reconciled to a right relationship with God. He is the only remedy to bring that about. There is no other way. Now, the death of Jesus took place on what has been called Good Friday. We'll actually celebrate that this coming Friday. And it's good because of what it accomplished, allowing us to be redeemed and restored. In the death of Jesus, everything changes. But it isn't the end of the story. Before we get to Easter, though, 
we have to arrive at the tomb where Jesus is laid. And that's what our five verses are about tonight. The crucified king is clearly in view, but like I said, there are these three other players, there's three other characters that come into view for us. So as we walk through this part of the story, I want us to ask ourselves, what do I learn about myself and about Jesus from this text? We see the first person in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea. Let me read verse 38 for us again. It says, after these things, meaning after the death of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. This is the only time that this person is mentioned, this Joseph of Arimathea. We don't know much about him, but John tells us the most important thing about him. He is a disciple of Jesus. But John points out something interesting about Joseph and his discipleship. He's a disciple of Jesus, but secretly so, for fear of the Jews. Now this doesn't mean that Joseph was denying his faith in Christ, just that he wasn't making it known that he was following Jesus. Now in this moment, we might be tempted to look at Joseph and think, man, if you're really following Jesus, you'd let people know about that, no matter what the cost might be for you. But before we go judging Joseph, for his fear, we need to understand the timing, the situation, and even our own heart. First, the timing. Jesus's public earthly ministry was about three years long. We don't know when Joseph began to follow Jesus. It could have been a week ago. It could have been at the beginning of his ministry. We just don't know when he actually started following him. The second thing we need to understand is the situation. And we don't learn this in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Luke, we learn a little bit more about Joseph. Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 21 say this. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the high court of the Jews. Then it says a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was a part of the Sanhedrin with all these other religious leaders, but he didn't agree with what they were doing to Jesus. It would have been extremely difficult for a member of this Jewish council to profess to be a follower of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that Joseph shouldn't have, but at least gives us some context for why he might not have. And I think this is also where we can pause and look at our own heart and our own lives. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes fear gets the best of us in our following of Christ. Can you think of a moment or an instance where you've had an engagement or an interaction with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a friend, and there was an opportunity for you to profess Christ, an opportunity for you to share Jesus, and you didn't because of fear maybe? Or someone who was ridiculing Christianity or the gospel, and instead of saying something about it, you continued to remain quiet because of fear. I think more of us are like Joseph than we would like to think. And see, we can be tempted to be like Peter, who we looked at a few weeks ago that denies Jesus, or like Joseph who hides. But that's exactly why we need the finished work of Jesus. If you find yourself denying or hiding, let me encourage you to repent and move afresh towards your savior who paid it all for you. That seems to be what happens with Joseph. 
He's a secret disciple of Jesus, but the very thing that would free him from his sin, the very thing that would free him from his shame and his fear deeply affects him. The death of his rescuer. The death of Jesus so affects Joseph that he goes into Pilate, the governor of all of the land, and he asks him to bury Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, it says he goes in and asks boldly, this once fearful man who didn't want to let anybody else around him know that he was going or that he was following Christ goes in faith and with confidence to care for the body of his Savior. To speak to the man who is the most powerful person in that local area. Now, it was likely that Joseph's high standing with the Jewish community as a member of the Sanhedrin gave him access to Pilate in the first place. I mean, not anybody could just roll up to Pilate's house and knock on his door and say, hey, I need to ask you a question. But he flashes his credentials and gets some FaceTime with him. Now, not every follower of Jesus is powerful and has a position of high authority. In fact, historically and presently, most disciples of Jesus don't. We're ordinary people. You are ordinary. I am ordinary. We're not meant to be impressive or flashy, and that's true of most disciples of Jesus around the world, but we have to be careful with that, that we don't see and place prestige as, or vilify prestige over and against ordinariness. In this case, Joseph uses it for something good. He uses it for something noble. He has a position of power and authority, and he goes and allows him to have access to receive Jesus' body. May that be our hope and our aim for any of us who have or will ever have positions of influence and power. And also give us reason to pray and evangelize those who already do. And the interesting thing about this whole exchange isn't so much that Joseph goes and asks for Jesus's body, it's that Pilate actually grants his request. See, the Romans didn't usually grant a proper burial for criminals, certainly not those who were executed for sedition. They were left for the vultures, for the elements. It was an act of shaming or deterring future criminals. Rome didn't usually do something like this, but Pilate does. In God's providence, and perhaps because he still doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty of anything, he does. So Joseph, no longer in fear, but in faith, takes away Jesus' body. But Joseph isn't alone. Another character comes into view, but this one isn't new. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus is also there. And John reminds us, in case we forgot, this is the same Nicodemus who came to Jesus in the middle of the night that he shared with us in John chapter 3. And if you remember that interaction, we've been in the Gospel of John now for a really long time, almost two years. So we've been in John 3, it was a while ago. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, comes to Jesus at night and he is questioning Jesus about the kingdom of God and about what Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to be a part of that, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, what? You want me to get back in my mother's womb? Like, what's up with that? Jesus reiterates again, no, you must be born again. In fact, you need to see the one lifted up, just like the bronze serpent was lifted up in the desert, lifted up and look on him and you'll be saved. In that instance, John doesn't tell us what Nicodemus does with that information that Jesus gives to him. But here, here we see the result. 
Nicodemus has believed. Now we don't know if he's been a secret disciple like Joseph, but they would have known each other from the Sanhedrin. And in this moment, they at least knew one another were disciples. Now what we do know is that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, but now he's stepping out in the day. He's walking in the light of his crucified king. In an act of devotion and worship, John tells us that Nicodemus brings a mixture of spices and aloes for burial, a, a common practice for those who are being buried, but he doesn't bring some small bag of potpourri. There's no like little essential oils jar that he's bringing along with him to sprinkle some drops on Jesus's body. It says he brings 75 pounds of this stuff. 75 pounds. That's 240 baseballs. That, that's equivalent to 300 apples. My almost 11-year-old son weighs about 75 pounds. Why in the world is he bringing this much spices and aloes for one body? I mean, the amount of spices he brings would have been, been excessive for most people, but not for a king. Nicodemus knows exactly whose body he's preparing for burial. So we see in verse 40, these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the Jewish council who are now followers of Jesus are coming to bury their savior. They're coming to bury the king of kings. And so verse 40, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with these spices, all 75 pounds of it. This is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. With gentleness and with care, they prepare the body of Jesus for burial, but they do so quickly. It's almost the beginning of Passover when all work must cease. And that certainly includes carrying around and transporting a corpse. They needed to bury him before sundown on Friday. Where are they gonna find a place to do that? such short notice. It was Jewish custom to bury criminals in common graves outside of the city, but Jesus, Jesus is no common criminal. They know and they believe he's the crucified and victorious king, the lamb who was slain to redeem the world from its sin. No, they found a suitable place for Jesus, a new tomb close by. Now it's interesting, I don't know if this strikes you, the word new, a new tomb. Like, what is it? Why is it new? Isn't it always new? Like, why would there be somebody else in there? But in ancient times, tombs were used over and over and over again. In fact, at times there would be multiple bodies placed within a tomb. And once the body had decayed, the bones would be collected and placed into a box and stored somewhere else. But this tomb in particular had never been used before. It's literally brand new. No body had ever laid in it before. But this isn't just any vacant tomb that they happen to walk by in the garden and say, I think this spot will work okay. I hope the owner doesn't mind. Now John gives us, doesn't give us these details, but in Matthew chapter 27, we get a little more information. Matthew 27 verses 59 and 60, it says this, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. It's Joseph's one which he had had cut in the rock. Matthew goes on to say, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. I love this. This is another sign of Joseph's devotion and his discipleship. He generously gives his place of rest to his redeemer. But this isn't just a nice example of Joseph's character. It also further fulfills scripture. 
Isaiah chapter 53 is one of the richest texts in all of the Bible. And I would encourage you this week, of all the weeks, to take some time in your own time with the Lord, in the time in the Word, to read Isaiah chapter 53 if you haven't read it ever or in a while. It's an overt prophecy about the death of Christ for the sin of his people. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, it says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, Jesus died among common criminals, but upon his death, he was cared for like a king. His body prepared, a tomb available, and there they laid him. Now, before we move on to the third character, I don't want us to miss something crucial in the mirror of this text that just has struck me this week as I've been thinking about these two people that we see before us. And it's this, Jesus can call anyone to himself. He can call anyone to himself. I mean, think about who these two guys were. Members of the Jewish council, religious powerhouses, the best of the best, respected and revered by all when it came to following the law of God. Yet here they are, bearing Jesus the one who claimed to be the son of God and savior of the world. A rich man at the risk of his own life and reputation asking for the body of Jesus. And the other, a once skeptical man, a teacher of the law of God who came to Jesus at night with doubting questions and unsatisfying answers. Both of them laying down their lives to follow Jesus and his teaching. Both of them undone, laid bare and made new by Jesus, the one who died in their place their sin. Brothers and sisters, no one is too far gone from God's redeeming grace. No one can out the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To the uttermost, there's no boundary, there's no limit to the kind of person that God can redeem and save. Doesn't matter how much you mock God, he can come after you and rescue you and give you ears to hear and eyes to see your need for him. No one is too far gone. So what does that mean for you? Maybe you find yourself thinking that you've done too much, that God wouldn't save you, couldn't save you. If he only really knew me, he would never want anything to do with me. But friend, he knows it all. He knows it all and he went to the cross to die in your place. So if you've never repented, if you've never believed, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to do so now. He already knows everything. For those of you who have experienced and are experiencing God's grace, may this vignette of these two men help you not to give up. Not to give up on your friend or your neighbor or your coworker or your kid who doesn't yet know Christ. When it comes to conversion, there aren't hard cases and easy cases. There is only death in life. There's only death in life. And our rescuing and resurrecting God desires to save from death to life. He desires to save mockers and seekers. So trust him and keep sharing Christ. Keep sharing Christ. I love the example of these two disciples when they had nothing to gain, 
nothing to gain by affirming their connection to Christ. They came right out into the open and did it. May that be you. May that be me as well. But these third character or characters seem to be wrestling with this. So much so they aren't even mentioned because they aren't present. The now 11 disciples. It's interesting to me that in this moment, those who had openly been Jesus' disciples, those who had left everything to follow him, who had seen him do miracles, who had heard his teaching, who had intimate moments of community with the Lord and Savior of the world were nowhere to be found in this moment. Why? We don't know for sure, but people are complex, aren't they? <laughs> it could be a combination, fear. We saw that with Peter but it most certainly included uncertainty and the unknown. I mean, think about this. They had put all their trust in Jesus, all their trust in him, and now he's gone. And he had told them multiple times that he'd be leaving them, even explicitly so, saying that he'd be handed over to authorities, that he'd die and rise again. But even if there was belief in them and hope in that from them, right now it's confusing. Right now it feels more like an if moment than a when moment. Do you ever have those? Like you're hoping for a promotion at work, if it happens. You're hoping for a better diagnosis, it's kind of an if. I hope this works out, if this comes through, if this happens, if this turns out the way that I'd like for it. If doesn't sound quite as stable as when. We can look at this and think, well, maybe they should have just trusted. Maybe they should have just believed. Jesus said he was gonna do this after all. But again, I think we can look at them and learn. Don't we at times balk at our faith and trust in God when things are uncertain or unknown in our own lives? Confusing and unsure. We know what God says to us. We can read his word. We know that he says he is for us. We know that he says that he loves us. We know that he tells us he will never leave us or forsake us. But what if we're wrong? What if he doesn't? What if he can't? What if? Right now in this moment, Jesus' disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus, as well as those that aren't present, are having to wait and see. To wait and see. Some theologians refer to the day between the crucifixion and the resurrection as Holy Saturday. It's the unspoken place in space. If you look at the end of verse 42 of chapter 19 there, where they laid Jesus in the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week. Why do theologians call it Holy Saturday? Because it's a moment of mixed emotions where God is still at work. It's a moment of waiting and wondering what's going to happen next. A moment mixed with grief and sadness, confusion and fear, faith and hope. Have you ever had a moment like that? Your emotions, your thoughts are all over the place as you wait. Waiting is a common theme in the scriptures. You see Abraham and Sarah having to wait, Isaac and Rebekah having to wait. The Psalms are full of the psalmist crying out, talking about his waiting on the Lord. And in the moment of waiting, it can feel unbearable. Not knowing when, not knowing how, only feeling like it's if. And we can be tempted in those moments towards unbelief. But you know what? As the disciples hold their breath in hope, God gives grace. 
He gives grace not in spite of, but in the midst of the uncertainty and the unknown. And you know what? God is often most at work in the times of waiting, stripping away false saviors, self-dependence, drawing us to himself because he's all we have. Friday, Jesus died. Saturday, his body lay motionless in the tomb, but Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. See, the disciples don't fully grasp that, but you and I can. Like Brent talked about earlier, we can look back on things now and have a more clear understanding than they had in those moments. We know what happens next. This is an in-between moment for them though. They're waiting and seeing. In some ways, we are in an in-between moment now. Jesus has come. And he says he'll come again, but it can be hard to wait. In the midst of the brokenness and the difficulty that we experience on a personal level or that we see in our world around us can leave us in a place of grieving and groaning. But I don't want us to do that without hope, and without peace. See, in all of this, I want you to grasp and get for your own life that death always comes before resurrection. And our God is still a resurrecting God. So in those moments when things seem uncertain and unclear, we have to come back to the character and nature of our God. Our God, the one who called all things into existence out of nothing, who sustains the universe, whose steadfast love and faithfulness is unending. The God that we worship, that we follow, that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have to come back in those moments of uncertainty, those holy Saturday moments, and we have to have faith once again in the faithfulness of our God. When you find yourself in one of those moments, those if moments, those uncertain moments, those unknown moments, how are you going to respond? Will it be in worship and devotion like Joseph and Nicodemus? They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. You grieve, but not without hope. Will you be able to say like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord continuing to cling to him and hold fast to him, knowing that he holds fast to you? Or will you run away looking for hope and peace and something or something else? My hope for you is that you can look at a text like this, like a mirror and see the truth reflected back to you and that you can take it with you like a photo that you can enter into this moment on a holy Saturday with all of its emotions and all of its feelings. And because of that, that you'll experience not an anxious waiting that's absent of peace, but a holy waiting that surpasses, that has a surpassing peace, a holy waiting that says, I know who my God is, even if I don't know what he's up to right now. I can trust his plans. I can trust his purposes. I can trust his timing because I can trust him. May you and I long for resurrection in our lives, just like the other disciples did then. May we do so wondering, not if, but only when. There they laid him, his body motionless in the tomb, but friends, Sunday is coming. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he blessed it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. When the apostle Paul is talking about this instance of Jesus setting up communion for us, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take communion every week as a church because we want to proclaim the Lord's death over and over again every week to ourselves and to one another. We want to remember that it is finished. That Jesus has come once and we can trust that he'll come again. And so we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken and given for us. We drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood spilled and poured out for us. It's an imaging of the good news of the gospel. And it's a reminder that we are now in an in-between moment as we wait for Jesus to come again. 